from 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 16 to 46 is our our main passage this morning. Now 500 years ago Martin Luther was summoned to appear before an assembly convened by the the emperor uh, in the city of Worms, Worms in Germany to to renounce to renounce or reaffirm his controversial views that he uh, nailed on the door of, of the church in 1517. But four years later, the, this, uh, this conference was uh, convened by the emperor himself, even though he wasn't there. But this, so he was called to respond, and this was Martin Luther's response. And I quote, unless, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive by the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Now, church history is full of stories such as Luther's of men and women who have, who have had to take a stand against the prevailing tide of corruption and godlessness and paganism. Many times they've had to do it on their own, against the prevailing tide. Some 2,800 years ago, the prophet Elijah also had to take a stand on a mountain. And today and next week we will look at, at, at this life-defining episode of how he stood before God and before the people. So, first of all, let's look at the situation and uh, I take you to 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 33. And we're going to have the, the verses up here. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal and that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Now, three years ago, as part of the, the tour of, of Israel, I also stood on, on Mount Carmel. It's part of, if you ever get to, to Israel, it, it is part of the, uh, the tour and Mount Carmel. So this is the view from the top of Mount Carmel, right there, looking towards the, the Valley of Israel, and then the, uh, the Valley of uh, Megiddo, from which we get the name Armageddon. So this is the view from the top. And so the next slide, also there. Uh, it's, it was sort of a cloudy day, so on, on a day that is not cloudy, you, you should be able to see all the way to, to the Mediterranean. And then the, the next slide, this is the, the monument that was put there to commemorate the event or what happened on Mount Carmel and that is supposedly the, 
prophet Elijah. So I stood there and I tried to take in the scenery. A mountain range, Mount Carmel is a mountain range in the north of Israel to the, uh, leaning towards the, the sea coast. And from the top you have this commanding view in all directions. And Carmel, Mount Carmel was strategic for both military and religious reasons. Whoever held Mount Carmel not only controlled the northern half of the nation but also controlled the nation spiritually. And by this time, the kingdom was already split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah. This, so this is concerning the northern part, the, the northern ten tribes. So King Ahab was unfortunately as weak as he was bad. But if King Ahab was bad, his pagan wife Jezebel was worse as she sought to establish... Baal worship as a regular feature in Israel. So Baal worship was a, a particularly degrading religion. It was a bizarre mixture of idolatry and perverted sexuality and child sacrifice. The pagans believed that Baal controlled the rising and the setting of the sun. He was, they considered him the God who brought forth the season along with the rains. Men and women who came to worship Baal <clears throat> would offer a sacrifice and then engage in sexual activity with the priest and the priestesses, therefore the attraction. They believed that by joining physically to those priests and priestesses of Baal, the power of Baal would be transferred to them. And more than that, they believe these practices encourage fertility in the soil and the plants as well. Weird stuff. But just look around and the stuff that's going on today. Back we go, right? Against this backdrop, comes Elijah, whose name means the Lord is my God. What a great name. He appeared before King Ahab and said, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That's chapter 17, verse 1. And with that, with that declaration, the rain stopped. The climate changed. And Elijah became public enemy number one. In today's language, he got cancelled. Soon enough, the ground began to turn brown and began to crack. The creeks dried up all across the land. Crops were dying. A couple of years ago, we visited uh, a, a drought-ravaged region of New South Wales, 10 hours from here, and it is absolutely devastating. This 65,000-acre property. You see animals. Once living animals became carcasses in the fields. And this is what the scene would have been like. 
somewhat apocalyptic. This is what happens. And God, however, kept Elijah for three years. First he was fed by ravens and then by a widow and son. God kept him alive. And finally, after three years, God tapped Elijah on the shoulder and said, go see Ahab again, Ahab the king. Go see him again. And when the king saw the prophet, he said to him, is that you, you troublemaker of Israel? Verse 17. Just think about this. The the nation is, is, is ravaged by paganism, promoted from the top, right from the top, by the king and his wife. The people of God were persecuted. The prophets were murdered. And yet the troublemaker was the man of God. How does that work out? But isn't this always the case? 500 years ago, the troublemaker was Martin Luther. The troublemakers are the believers who won't comply. The believers who stand against the system, against the tide, who will not just simply follow, who will not be carried away by the tide of godlessness. And and then somehow... They tell us that we are the intolerant ones who continue to quote scripture and display hate speech. And yet we must continue to defend ourselves with the truth like Elijah who stood before the king. And in verse 18, this is what his his response was. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you... You and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. That's where the trouble starts. So this is the challenge. Chapter 18, verses 19 to 21. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet on Mount Carmel. And by the way, I'm reading again because we need to Infuse it in our minds what the passage is telling us, what God is telling us in his word. And, and, and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah to eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word through all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long, and this is the challenge, how long will you waver between two opinions? The Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The people said nothing. Because the people did not want to completely abandon God. They wanted to have God, but do all the other stuff as well. But they probably found God, the Lord too holy, too austere, with too many rules. Baal was so attractive, so much more fun 
Easy going. Let's party on. So they wanted a bit of both. And Elijah tells them, you can't do that. You need to choose between the Lord and Baal. You can't have your feet in both camps. And you know, many things have plagued Christianity over the years. But perhaps spiritual indecision is one of the greatest. The inability of the people of God to make up our minds to decide which side we're really on. We want to keep the world happy. We want to keep God happy. But can you feel that the pressure is on? The squeeze is on? When the pressure is on, there's an inability, unfortunately, of the young and old alike to stand up for what you believe and, and letting everyone know whose team you're really on. And because you, know, you should know that it's impossible to take a stand on anything if you are wavering in your commitment. If you're not sure about this, well, I'm not sure about that and I'm not sure about anything anymore. I've had those discussions. Neither hot nor cold and sitting on a fence. I don't know if you've ever tried sitting on a fence, but it's uncomfortable after a while. got to decide sooner or later, are you going to serve Baal or are you going to serve Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, our God? And, and with these words, how long, the prophet was asking them, what was it going to take to wake them up? Three years of drought and you still have not woken up? Don't you, can't you see? Can't you... Open your eyes. How much of God's judgment would they have to endure before they realise what the real problem was? They needed to repent. They needed to obey God. But God was calling them back to Him. But they still weren't listening. What was it going to take? Today the man in his hubris trusts science, the writers, the fact checkers, but not in God. But who really controls the rain? the cycles of nature, of life and death. It is unfortunate that for for many Christians the sovereignty of God is, is this wonderful doctrinal statement that we keep somewhere, but it doesn't seem to be reflected in everyday life. Is the Lord God or not? And yet when you open the scriptures, it is there everywhere. But this truth needs to be transferred to everyday life. 
so during this pandemic, it has been quite relevant to, to, to ask these questions. Which God will you trust? Which gods? Gods. There's so many gods now. Will you trust? The gods of science? Because apparently they hold the truth. The gods of politics? The gods of economics? Or even the charlatans, the celebrities, the talking heads? Who will you trust? We must trust God and his grace in all matters of our lives. In all matters of our lives. Trust God. So here is the contest in verses 25 to 29. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Boy, you just divvy up the task pretty easily, right? Call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull that was given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us! I shouted. There was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder! Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or travelling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until the blood flowed. Midday passed. They continued with their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice and, and, and again, a repetition of that statement from verse 26, verse 29. There was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. No one, no one, no one. It is, notice how it's Elijah who calls for this contest between Yahweh and Baal and he set the conditions for the contest, for this big matchup. Yet he gave every possible advantage to the prophets of Baal. He wanted no accusations of being unfair in any way. The prophets of Baal were to cut up the bull, lay the pieces on the wood, but Elijah would not, one condition, he wouldn't let them set the fire. Couldn't light it up. No matches allowed. Ask Baal to light the fire for you. That was the only condition. And then begins the frantic efforts. They prayed from morning till noon and nothing happened. By noon they started getting desperate. They started carrying on and on. Even cutting themselves. In all of their desperation, you can imagine these 850 prophets, in all their desperation, the last thing you need is one pesky, solitary prophet in the corner sledging the other 850. It's like the wicketkeeper in cricket, isn't it? Sorry, you're sledging the other players, trying to put them off their game. What's going on, guys? Something going on? 
Well, nothing's going on. And the worst of his taunts in the original Hebrew is when he tells them that maybe their God is busy relieving himself. We've cleaned it up for the English. And after all the antics of the prophets of Baal, he never showed up. The God that they called the rider of the clouds, the powerful one, was proven a total and utter dud on Mount Carmel. What would happen if today we made fun of the so-called gods of the other religions? Oh, I have been tempted, and so have you. The Old Testament prophets did not hold back. Isaiah said the people would cut wood and use half the wood for cooking their food and then the other half into a god to worship. That's Isaiah 44. Habakkuk challenged the people to talk to their piece of wood or stone and see if they would come to life. But you see, unless the Lord tells us otherwise... We need to balance this with Peter's words in the New Testament. 1 Peter 3.15 When we are witnessing, when we are telling people about God, when we are answering their arguments, what, how do we need to do it? 1 Peter 3.15 says we need to do this with gentleness and with respect. That's the call for us. And I know in social media and other places it's <clears throat> pull back guys, behave yourself. There will be a time, there will be a place. But there is obviously a lot of stake here. By the end there would be 850 dead prophets. The people needed to see Baal for the fraud that he is, along with his prophets. And maybe there will come a time when any one of us, or a few of us, could be lined up in the middle of a plaza for a public show, as happens in many parts of the world today, happens in Africa Public hanging, are Christians, are you going to, how will you respond? The showdown. The people needed to see Yahweh for the true God that he is and his prophet is also, that he is real, that he is the real deal. And Elijah set the contest with absolute confidence in God and he was willing to stake everything on that confidence. It was a matter of life and death. And then the altar, verses 30 to 33. Then Elijah said to all the people, come on, come out here, come on, come on. They came to him and repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. 
And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the ball into pieces and laid it on the wood and then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. What is an altar? An altar is a place where sacrifices were offered. And it always represented a place of consecration, a connection between heaven and earth. If the nation is going to be rebuilt, it had to start at the altar. This is also what happens with the exiles when they would return from Babylon to Jerusalem after 70 years. What did they do in the rebuilding of the city? They started of the temple. They started with the altar. But there is also plenty of symbolism here to bring back the nation back to its spiritual heritage. You know how the progressives are always pushing us away No, no, just forget about history. We are going into new times, new understandings. Elijah has taken them back. The 12 tribes represented the 12 jars, is represented by the 12 jars of water. No, there's not 12 jars of water. There's four jars poured over 12 times. Then there's the 12 stones recalling the, the name of, from Jacob to Israel, all served to call the people back to God, the God of the covenant. This is what God had promised to be, that he was going to be their God. They were going to be his people. And what's more, that the timing of all of this is, is significant. Why? Because as Elijah rebuilt the altar late in the afternoon, about the time for the evening Sacrifice. It's all full of symbolism, isn't it? And here is when, in front of everyone, Elijah lifts a quiet prayer, brief, elegant, simple. Just think about the prayers that went on from the pagan priests. It went on, the all day groaning and slashing and wailing and dancing. It went on and on and on. Elijah's, I think it's 60 words, so simple. His only concern was for God, for his word, for his work, for his glory, for God's people. He confesses God as God and asks him to reveal himself to his people. No screaming, no hollering, no cutting. This is, we have to be impressed by the simplicity and the dignity of it all. And then, and then, and only then are they ready to see a, a display. God was going to turn up in a mighty way. So first of all, God's power, verse 38. And then the fire of the Lord fell and, and, and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, 
and licked up the water in the trench. The, the pagans spent all day calling their God. The Lord shows up and it's all consumed in an instant. Bush. What a sight that would have been. Did you see that? No. What happened? It's all gone. I think there would have been a lot of charcoal there. The people witnessed the, the mighty power of God. They, they would have been overcome fear and awe. Folks, you don't want to mess around with God. You don't want to mess around with God. They witnessed firsthand that the Lord indeed is God and not Baal. All these imitators. And then God's, they also witness, they will witness God's judgment in verse 40. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. This sounds a little bit unkind, doesn't it? But God is holy and it is consistent with the judgment of the 3,000 people who were, who were killed at the episode of the golden calf, Moses. God doesn't muck around. Because why? Because for years these priests have been pushing pagan worship despite the, the utter failure of it all, despite the drought, despite everything, they kept pushing their brand of worship, they, their brand of religion, their brand of paganism. Radical times calls for radical measures. The cancer had to be cut off from the land and you had to start with the priests. What else would they see? They would also see a wonderful display of God's mercy in verses 44. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising up from the sea. As he looked over the Mediterranean, a small cloud, tiny cloud. You can only imagine that uh, they hadn't seen a cloud for a very long time. A long drought. But in God's mercy, things were about to turn as the people had suffered enough. Six times, Elijah sends his, his servant to look out to the sea. Come on, what do you see? Okay, okay nothing, nothing, nothing. But the seventh time he saw a cloud about the size of a man's hand. That was enough. That was enough for Elijah to know that this is a sign, this is what he was waiting for. That the drought was over. Final thoughts. Elijah was called the troublemaker. And, and uh, 
The rest of King Ahab and the rest of Israel simply expected Elijah to pray for rain and to end the drought. Fix it. But no, God had to fix their hearts first. Point them towards himself. The Lord had them under judgment for failing to acknowledge his word for their idolatry and they had to face these serious issues before God would bless them with rain. They wanted God, they wanted Baal, they wanted to mix it all together. Elijah said, enough! Enough! You need to choose which God you will serve. And after you choose the right God, the Lord of Israel, the blessings will come. And Elijah was able to stand before the king, before the priests, before the people, alone, alone, because he stood where? He stood before God. And if you stand before God, there's no one, no need to fear anybody else. But as we will see next week, this is not the end of the story. Just as God had to deal with the nation of Israel, now God has to do some work in Elijah himself. Do your homework and read chapter 19. Until next week. Amen.